Hey Rebels, my name is Matthew Barton, and I'm the host of the Rebellion Brewing Podcast. Before COVID-19, Rebellion hosted quite a few events at the taproom, from NHL 94 tournaments to beer tastings and fashion shows, but one of the most popular events we host is a pickup game of Dungeons & Dragons. When I first pitched the idea of bringing Dungeons & Dragons to the taproom, other members of our team were a little bit skeptical. But Mark said he's willing to try anything once. So we built an event page on Facebook and printed about 10 posters and we just kind of kept our expectations in check. The event proved to be a big success and the place was packed with players and teams who, unsurprisingly to me, are also huge craft beer fans. Today's guest is Daniel Parr, and he's played a huge role in bringing D&D to our taproom. And the name we use for our event, Dungeons and Flagons, it was his suggestion. I've been a player at his table for more than a decade, and I've learned a lot from him. So let's get into it. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? Deadly. I get to talk about Dungeons and Dragons with my bud. And you get paid to do it. Jealous. <laughs> I know since we're doing this socially distantly, I'm going to have to get you some beer after the fact since we won't be able to drink it together today. Well, I know you're good for it. <laughs> so let's start from the very beginning. How did you get involved with playing Dungeons and Dragons? Where did you start? Well, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for about 25 years. Um, I was first introduced to it by my uncle and cousin um, who have since uh, retired their dice, but I keep the family tradition strong. Um, so obviously I started as a, a little know-nothing player, but uh, eventually I had to put on my DM hat if I wanted to keep playing. Um, and of course, once you're the DM, you need some players. So I roped my friends in and I've been very privileged to have the more or less the same group for over 20 years now. Um, so that's my a thumbnail sketch of my D&D history. It's been so many years of playing. What do you get out of it? Why do you still keep coming back to it? Well, for me, Dungeons & Dragons sits uh, squarely in the center of a, a Venn diagram of all my interests. Um, you have the acting, theater, improvisational part, you have the storytelling part, uh, you have the game part, you have the fantasy part, and of course you have the part where you get to push little pieces of plastic around squares. <laughs> it's a combination of scratching that storytelling itch and a little bit of uh, competition. Um, actually, one of the beauty, beautiful things about Dungeons & Dragons is that um, it's collaborative, of course. So you come together with your friends to tell a story that everybody enjoy, enjoys. Um, of course, people can have some scope of competition in there, but ultimately it works best when everybody's focusing on not just having a good time, but having a good time together with their friends. When it comes to the Dungeons & Flagons events at the taproom, how many have you come to? Has it been every single one? Um, unfortunately, I had to miss one, um, and I still regret it. Probably will to my dying day, uh, but I've been to every other one. And what did you think? I mean, I have my own opinions, but I wanted to know what you think. Well, I think they're great events. Um, obviously, the turnouts have been great. Um, 
And it's just a, a wonderful, welcoming atmosphere. Um, I love the fact that uh, Rebellion has been cooperating with comic readers to um, bring attention to the event and to comic readers. Um, and I know that they have worked hard to be an inclusive space to everybody, but particularly to new players. So by inviting new players in a friendly, low stakes atmosphere and then connecting them to places like comic readers, it's the probably the best way there is to grow the um, community. What do you say when new people are looking to try out the game or have questions? Maybe they're thinking about it. Um, well, I, I strongly encourage them to do it. I, and then I say, when can you come over to play Dungeons and Dragons if they're interested? Um, but if they're if they seem skeptical or hesitant, um, I usually bill it by saying. Um, you know, it's, it's like improv with a little bit more rules or I, I try to hone in on what they like to do. I mean, chances are good they've seen The Lord of the Rings and they'll know that. Um, and these days, it's, it's of course, it's easier than ever thanks to the boom of um, Dungeons and Dragons entertainment. So chances are good at this point, uh, people have at least some baseline familiarity with Dungeons and Dragons. So I can kind of find what they're interested in and, and hone in on that. When you're talking about the the rise of Dungeons and Dragons entertainment, in my mind, I think you're talking about Critical Role. Is that is that correct? Um, critical Role is definitely on the list, but um, you know, there's so many great D and D shows like um, Dice Camera Action, Rivals of Waterdeep, um, The Adventure Zone. Just like Dungeons and Dragons, I think there are Dungeons and Dragons podcasts or role play podcasts, actual plays for any interest or style. Um, so that's the beauty of it too. You know, if someone watched Critical Role and they found out that wasn't exactly for them, um, then there's any number of other things that might be a better fit for them. I was really pleased when you said um, Chad has been a big supporter. Um, comic readers, I feel like they're one of the hot spots in Regina for nurturing the game and kind of building a community that is, it's a little bit harder to break into than other hobbies. Absolutely. I, I, you know, not only is it a place where you could go to buy Dungeons and Dragons materials, your dice, your books, your minis, which is critical, um, but it's a place, a site of the community. I mean, um, it's a place where you can connect with other gamers. And um, of course, in addition to Dungeons and Flagons, comic readers and SAS games are always doing events like um, the their conventions and uh, the, the play with their food, uh, Tuesday challenge. There's lots of opportunities to through comic readers and SAS games to connect with fellow gamers. So if you, if you don't have a group or you're looking to, to start, all of those places are, again, very welcoming, inclusive places. You could probably just drop by, start talking to people, and before you know it, you'll be playing a game. One of the things I've noticed is when I've seen other people run a game, I, I have two benchmarks. I have yourself and I have Mike's in terms of how a GM operates, how a GM runs a game. What do you think is your general philosophy for play? Well, I think personally, my biggest mantra that I keep try to keep in mind when I'm playing is to be a fan of the players, which is actually a pretty tricky um, balancing act in a way, because you want to make it fun and you want to make it fair. Uh, you want your players to succeed, but you don't want to just hand it to them. Nobody's going to enjoy it if, they just walk into a room and all the treasures laid out for them. They want to feel like they earned it. So you have to make it achievable, but difficult so that everybody enjoys it. And 
I think you have to be open to um, your players' ideas, um, incorporate them, and uh, just, again, focus on the collaborative element. That's my philosophy. Um, I know other people have different approaches, and that's fine because, again, that's the beauty of Dungeons & Dragons. There's all different ways to play, and there isn't, as long as everybody at the table is having fun, then there's no wrong way to play Dungeons & Dragons. One of the things I recall from when we're sitting down and playing is how charitable and generous you are to us when we're trying to do something, whether it's a shenanigan or role play, you're very accommodating. Whereas I've seen other player, other dungeon masters just say, get back on the rails. We're going in this direction. Is that a conscious choice or is that just how you've always played? Um, I, I think it's a, like I said, it's something I try to keep in the back of my mind, but to, to give maybe some credit to those un- other dungeon masters, especially when you're starting out, it's a lot easier to work within a framework that you have pre-conceptualized. I think it takes a lot of um, practice to improvise. And the other thing is, um, I think, you know, as I've stressed, it's really important for everyone to find the right group for their play style. So some people have had bad experiences with dungeon masters who have a different style and they're afraid to take risks because every time they take a risk, the dungeon master punishes them severely for it. Or conversely, there'll be dungeon masters who had players who have gone out of their way to be disruptive or ruin the game. It's a lot easier to be accommodating to people's shenanigans, what they think is fun when you know ultimately they're on your side as well and it's in the interest of telling a story. They might throw you for a curveball, but as long as everybody um, is on board, then that's going to be more fun than just staying on what one person had in mind. But everybody has to trust each other and get along. So that's a, that can be the trick to it. It sounds like you're talking about uh, picking players or maybe a, a dungeon master like a job interview. Absolutely. And in fact, I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a practically tempted to put um, experienced dungeon master on my uh, resume. It's just that I think some people might misinterpret the dungeon part. <laughs> but, um, you know, because it's a, it teaches a lot of really valuable skills of, of leadership and working collaboratively, you know, um, joint problem solving, creativity, all those things. Um, and it, it's just, just like a job, not all jobs are, or all say coworkers are a good fit for the peoples. And that's not a reflection on any particular person. It's just not everybody is going to be a good fit for one another. And that just means they need to find somebody else. And it's not good or bad. It just is. One of the things we were doing this morning at Rebellion in this very office where I'm recording was job interviews. We're looking to hire a new person. And one of the discussion points that kept coming up for us was culture. We wanted somebody who would fit in with the culture. They could learn the skills. They could catch up on the other stuff. But for us, culture was a big deal. And it it feels like when I watch you play, you're conscious of how is a person going to fit into the culture. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's, a, again, it's a question of um, just making a creative, uh, a welcoming space, rather, excuse me. Um, and again, if you get a new hire on the job, um, you want to watch them and see how they fit in and, and find the best way to fit them in. Um, and again, be a fan of them and give them the benefit of the doubt if they stumble a little bit. Um, you know, pick them up and guide them. If it looks like they're doing it deliberately, then maybe it's not a good fit. But uh, as long as they're trying, then you can meet their their effort with your own effort and probably 
you'll get there in the end, right? You're like a Zen Buddha master for Dungeons & Dragons. Well, I'm passionate about Dungeons & Dragons, and I'd really like everyone to be able to enjoy it or to enjoy tabletop role-playing games at any rate. So I try to be very inclusive as much as possible. I know for myself, I have a really strong writing background. I love the whole journalism thing. I like telling a good story. And for me as a dungeon master, I like crafting a story. It scratches that itch. And I wanted to understand from your perspective, what are you most focused on now for your game? Is it storytelling? Is it just hanging out with friends and enjoying some snacks? Like, where is your priority? Um, to me, it depends on on where everyone's at, including myself. Ultimately, my personal preference is with you. I I enjoy telling an interesting story with lots of twists and turns, and um, I don't want to say drama exactly because that has a a bad connotation, but um, let, let's call it intrigue. Um, but not everybody wants that the same way. Um, so you try and feel everyone out and, um, and sometimes, you know, if everyone's tired, maybe you just come to the table and have some laughs and, and crack open a few cans of rebellion and hang out. And that's fine too. Um, and again, so again, different groups can have different, um, things they want out of a session and it can even vary from session, session to session. Um, ultimately though, my, I'm with you. It's the storytelling is what I appreciate the most. When, when I look back upon our group, the table, the group of the guys that we play with, we kind of got a shared language now, shared history. We, we tell jokes from the games that have come in the past and the years. How is it different for you when you're hosting a different group or a different table? Um, I think it's that, you know, every, every group will develop their own language and their own dynamic um and that's you know one of the beauties of of having different groups or every different group has its own alchemy so and the benefit of playing with multiple groups is that you know you can learn a new thing that you can use with other people and then in your you can learn a different thing and use it there i mean nothing no good idea ever goes to waste no experience is wasted you know, it's, it's a great way to earn some personal experience points and level up as a player. One of the things I think I've stolen from you the most is trying to adopt that sense of empathy. Was that something you think you, you brought to the table over time? Was it a lesson you learned? Did maybe somebody sit down with you and say, this is something that's important. And then you said, I'm taking that with me. I, I, I mean, I'm very interested in the craft of Dungeons and Dragons, um, but I, I've never had a mentor per se. Um, you know, I've, I'm, I learned on the job, um, but I, I just, I think empathy is a valuable trait regardless. And I try to bring it to everything I do. Um, but uh, Dungeons and Dragons in particular is a great place for that because um, it's an opportunity to try on some different identities um, or, imagine some some scenarios that you may not encounter in your life but you know if you if you have a good imagination maybe something that you encountered in Dungeons and Dragons is going to give food for thought for something that happens later in your own life when you when you look back upon all the years of gaming all the years of Dungeons and Dragons is there a singular moment where you, you kind of say yeah that's the one 
that's the one I would tell people to get them interested or that's a valuable story that I like. It's actually really challenging in a way because um, I think, um, you know, role players have this really bad tendency or they have a bad reputation, sorry, for sort of cornering people at a party to tell them about their awesome Dungeons and Dragons character. And, you know, the person whom they're speaking to has no interest in it because it's so contextual, right? Like, yeah, you could say, you know, my barbarian Hogar, he has a really big ax and he chops all the monsters and it's really cool. But like, to hear that story secondhand is not the same as experiencing it firsthand. So it's really difficult to, you know, distill one moment and then say to somebody, this is why you need to play Dungeons and Dragons. So that's actually one of the real challenges of trying to communicate my passion of my passion for the hobby, because it's one of the things, you know, it's almost like the matrix, right? Nobody can tell you what the matrix is. You have to experience it for yourself. And Dungeons and Dragons is the same. So, you have to be, I mean, that's another, you have to be trustworthy, let's say, to get somebody to come to the table. And then I'm sure, I'm not sure, but it's likely that once they're there, they're going to have fun and they'll be able to understand it. But um, in terms of like, you know, that one moment, this is a little cliche, but every moment, you know, every chance you get to sit at a table with your friends and tell a story is a valuable moment. Take a break from all the things that are plaguing you and uh, tell a story and have some fun. You really can't beat that. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to put you on the spot because when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about the answer that I would give. And I wanted to say it was the game we were playing three years ago where my character, uh, Rory Cooper at the time, this character was going through a lot of strength and trials at the behest of basically your story and something was happening. Like there was a conflict going on and he was asked to save a person or kill the person. And when it finally unfolded, it, I think it was like two years after the fact, when you kind of planted those seeds, finally the tree bore fruit and it blew my mind because I didn't see it coming. And one of the other players at the table had said, yeah, I kind of figured it out about a year ago. And I was like, I had no idea that you, you hooked in this plot twist and you kept that secret. I feel for like two years, it, it would have eaten me alive. I don't know if I could have kept that secret, but you did. And I, I think that was one of the finest storytelling moments that we've shared. Well, I, I actually agree. Um, and, uh, as a dungeon master, it's always very rewarding when you have a conception for the way something's going to play out or how you'd like it to play out. And it does without you putting your thumb on the scale too much, um, you know, when you when you just guide things. But I guess a, a couple of secrets is that, A, it's very helpful to have um, a confidant who doesn't play in that game so that you can, A, bounce ideas off of them and, B, tell them your cunning plan. It's going to be a bit like that person at the party when you corner them to tell them how cool your character is but it's still a, a release valve for the, uh, the, sh the sheer agony of having a secret and nobody to share it with. And the second thing is that, you know, it, it comes back to that improv improvisational um, element. You know, you can plant the seeds and, and try and guide the players, but if they don't follow it, that's fine. You just go for something else, right? That's again, the, the collaborative part of it. You know, the, the story of Rory Cooper wasn't, just this story that was imposed on him it was the choices that Rory 
made that made the story satisfying. So ultimately it was that collaborative element that made that story so impactful. If I had just had a, an idea and I made it happen, that's not nearly as um, compelling as this story that we told together. The, um, some of the most popular pieces of the games that I'm running are elements that I've stolen directly from your mind, from your table. The, the things that the, the people that I'm playing with who've never played with you, haven't met you, they respond so grippingly to your characters. And all I have to do is just cheat and just pretend to be you for the few minutes that I'm playing either your character or somebody that you've created. It's, it's, it's interesting to see how easy it is for them to, to grab onto those characters and make them their own. And I just, I like that, that sense of that. And you're really generous about it. You're not like, Hey, don't use my character. Don't use, don't use my idea. You're like, okay, cool. I think that's really generous and cool of you. Well, I, I appreciate that. And also, I mean, I appreciate you telling me about, you know, if a character of mine makes a cameo, I mean, I could be say, don't do that, but like you could just do it and not tell me. Right. So you, or you could, you could just sh shuffle a couple of letters around like, um, but by having that conversation, then it allows us to talk a little bit more about our, our similar and differing approaches to the craft. So, you know, again, that's, we have, we have that chance to talk about our approaches to different games, compare notes and learn different things from one another. So um, that's again, the beauty of having, I encourage every dungeon master to get a dungeon master friend who they don't play with just so they can uh, bounce off of each other. Do you have one NPC or one character that you're particularly proud of from all your years of playing? Well, again, the beauty of being the dungeon master is that, um, you know, when you're a player it can be agonizing because you have this great character that you really love and then you get an idea for a new character and you're like, oh, what do I do? You know, do I hope that my character who I like a lot dies or do I retire them? Like, how am I going to play a new character? When you're the dungeon master, of course, you get to explore if you have a great idea you're going to inflict it on your players. So you get to try out so many different things. Um, I have to say, although of all time, one of my favorite NPCs would be in the game that you alluded to earlier with Rory Cooper. Um, my favorite NPC was the um, fey trickster called Wittershins, who was a, a foul-mouthed little gnome who had more to him than met the eye. He was great. You'd pepper him in and he would just keep insulting us <laughs> and I could, because, uh, I never had really high stats on the intelligence chart for that. My character, Rory, I could never match wits with Wittershin. I always had to take the dumb way out <laughs> and just to kind of take his abuse. But as a player sitting back, I'm like, oh man, I love how you, you brought him into the game and had him beat us up a little bit. I like him as um, a bit of a, I think of him as a foul-mouthed Yoda, um, <laughs> which was a, a fun character to play. And yeah, he played a different a different role in the story. Um, and I especially liked the way that he could be, you know, um, an opportunity to take the characters down a peg. At, at a point, the characters became quite powerful and the world was very reactive to them. Um, but someone like Wittershins was... He may have been unpleasant, but he wasn't a problem that could be solved by violence or power. Um, so he was he was just kind of there to 
give a different perspective to things. And of course, he was a lot of fun to to think up, you know, character specific insults. You uh, you mentioned that not every problem can be solved by violence. I I want to grab onto that. I don't want to let that go because I think it's something that a lot of GMs and a lot of players can resonate with is the the murder hobo phenomenon. What has your experience with murder hobos kind of been? Well, as I said, for the most part, I've been very lucky to have a group who trusts me and who I trust. Um, but one of the ways that you can, in my opinion, to curtail um, murder hoboism is to get the characters, get the players invested um, in the world and in the NPCs and in, by extension, their characters. If they start to like somebody and then their actions of wanton violence causes negative repercussions for the character that they like, they will probably be more circumspect about how they meet out violence in the future. If they don't feel invested or if they, particularly if your players don't feel like they have any other power or any other way to interact with the setting, they'll be more likely to engage in violence just because they're bored or they want to see what happens. And also many new players will start off you know, if you tell them they can do anything, it's probably human nature, but if you tell people they can do anything they want, they want to break something right away, right? And that's fine, but, you know, I, I would say if a new player does that, you should uh, be gentle with them in the, in the respect of saying, like, try to help them understand what that means in the context of the setting and then ask them if that's really what they want to do and this is what's likely to outcome. And then if they want to do it, then then you follow through with the outcomes that you laid out, and then they see it. And ultimately they may decide that as a result, Dungeons and Dragons is not for them, or maybe that's not the right group for them, uh, but that's fine. Again, there's, it's not wrong to want to play six heavily armed uh, killers who kick down dungeon doors and fight monsters all day, if that's how you want to play Dungeons and Dragons, but not everybody wants that. So again, it comes back to my, I guess my hobby horse here, that uh, you, you need to find the right players and the right game for the game you want to play. I stole one of those concepts or one of those thoughts from you directly. When I was building the world for the current game I'm hosting, the players, I, I said, you're on a heist and this is going to be like Ocean's Eleven. You got to plan it out. You got to figure out the routine of the guards. How do you get into the building? Do you pick the locks or go through the windows or use magic? And ultimately, they decided to use vampires. They used illusions to create a vampire to scare the guards away. And then they broke in. And the consequence of using that vampire scare was the city brought in a bunch of people who were designed to kill vampires. And they had innocent people getting basically burned at the stake or thrown in jail or killed because they were suspected of aiding and abetting or being vampires. And it's something that's really resonated with them. Almost two years later, they're, they're like, oh man, we don't want to have another vampire incident. And I stole that from you. <laughs> well, I'm, I am flattered, although I, I should say, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for me to reflect as well, because um, I think it's important to, although it's good to have realistic outcomes for actions um it's also important not to be the gm who you know no no matter what the players do some negative consequence will be the outcome always good to have 
you know, keep them on their toes, but you don't want to get them despairing that no matter what they do, they've only made things worse. Sometimes that's good, um, but not all the time. So I'll have to put that in my, in my pocket of, you know, things to keep in mind. I did give them the opportunity to, to fix their mistakes. I just wanted to, a way to kind of nudge them and say, look, your actions have consequences. That's right. And, and it, it shows that they have an influence on the world, even outside of what they're currently doing. And so they feel invested. And, you know, even if it's, let's, let's be careful not to do that again. It shows that they're invested in the setting and the story. So in that case, it's very much mission accomplished. Awesome. Danny, thank you for your time today. Well, it was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Rebels, thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, be sure to join us on our brand new Facebook group page, The Rebellion Brewing Podcast. I'm going to include links in the show notes so you can find Danny on Twitter and pepper him with any Dungeons & Dragons questions. The Sasscraft beer scene is always changing, and I'm going to do my best to keep featuring all the new and local beers coming out. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Untapped so you don't miss out on a single thing. Thank you for joining The Rebellion.